0: Last week, we were on the mountaintop with Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John. We were able, through the eyes of the disciples, to become eyewitnesses of His Majesty. They had gone to the mountain to pray, and were privileged to see our Lord's glory revealed in the Transfiguration, They witnessed his divine nature temporarily break through the veil of his flesh. They were also privileged to see Moses and Elijah, who had returned to earth to encourage Jesus and strengthen him for what lay ahead. And to then see the Shekinah presence of God. And to hear His voice proclaim, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. What an amazing experience. And Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. In fact, he offered to build tabernacles, little shelters, so they could all just stay there. But God doesn't want us... Staying on the mountain. It's good to spend time there, but we can't live there. Our spiritual mountaintop experiences are intended to prepare us for ministry in the valley. Not to become the totality of our religious experience. So Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain with Jesus. But in their descent from the mountaintop, they found failure in the valley. Continuing our study in Matthew 17. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And is very ill. And he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, oh, believing, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move. And nothing shall be impossible to you. Now Mark gives us additional detail. He says when they came back to the disciples, the nine disciples who had been left behind, who didn't get to go up on the mountain, they saw a large crowd gathering around them and heard some scribes arguing with them. And the crowd saw Jesus. They came running to him and he asked, well, what were you discussing with them, with the scribes? what's going on? What are you arguing about? It was then that the man came up to Jesus and fell on his knees and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Now, we don't use that word much. It actually means moonstruck. It's the way they looked at this ailment. Now, the New International Version has interpreted this as epilepsy, and the symptoms do sound like it. Mark says the boy would fall on the ground, foam with the mouth, grind his teeth, and stiffen out. So epilepsy may have been part of the problem, but his condition was not entirely physical because, as we'll see, there was a demonic involvement here as well, but whatever The ideology of his problem, it was a serious problem that endangered the boy's life. One that caused him on occasion to even fall into fire and bodies of water. The father had brought his son to Jesus' disciples, but they had been unable to help. That's apparently what... The crowd was arguing about the scribes, no doubt, making the most of an opportunity to make Jesus disciples look bad. And they did look bad. You know, back in Matthew 10, Jesus had given them the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And now they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Jesus responded to the report of their failure by saying, O oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, his words were obviously addressed to those standing there, the generation living at the time. But to whom in that generation were they specifically addressed? Surely not the Father, for he was coming with faith to Jesus, faith that had no doubt been shaken by the disciples' failure, but faith nonetheless. Some suggest that Jesus was addressing the scribes here, referring to them as the unbelieving and perverted generation, and indeed they were. But I don't think that's who Jesus was addressing on this occasion. I believe he was talking to the disciples. In particular, the nine who had failed to heal the boy. They had apparently lost faith in the fact that Jesus had empowered them to do whatever he had commissioned them to do. They had stopped believing. Their thinking had become perverted, twisted. And they were so spiritually confused that they had lost the ability to do what they had once done. What had happened to precipitate their failure? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, Jesus had been telling them he was going to Jerusalem, not as a military Messiah they anticipated, but as a martyr to be killed. And to be raised up on the third day. Now, that confused them. They didn't understand. It shattered their dreams. And then he had taken only Peter and James and John up on the mountain. The nine had been left behind. What was wrong with them? Didn't he love them? Didn't he want their company? All kinds of questions and doubts flooded their minds and twisted their thinking. And it so spiritually incapacitated them that when they had been asked to do something they had done many times before, they couldn't do it. So Jesus said, bring him to me. And when they brought the boy to Jesus, all hell broke loose, literally. The demonic spirit threw him into convulsions. He fell on the ground, rolling about, foaming at the mouth. It's a crazy thing. But Jesus calmly asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, since childhood. And then the father said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responded, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, the NIV actually got it better than the New American Standard here. They put a question mark after if you can instead of an exclamation point. The father was questioning Jesus' ability to heal his son. And Jesus is addressing the man's lack of faith in him at that point by, in effect, asking, what do you mean, if you can? He then goes on to say all things are possible to him who believes. Now... As we'll see when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the demon, Jesus is not suggesting that if we will just conjure up enough faith in ourselves that we can do anything. He was challenging the man to have faith in him and what he could do for him. The man responded by saying he did believe, but needed to be reassured that Jesus could do what he had asked him to do. And Jesus assured him that he could by simply doing it. When Jesus saw a crowd was gathering, he quickly rebuked the spirit and said, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. The spirit cried out threw the boy into terrible convulsions and came out, leaving the boy looking as if he were dead. Jesus then took him by the hand, raised him up, and gave him back to his father. Luke tells us everyone was amazed at the greatness of God. The disciples, however, were confused. And when they got back to the house, they asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? Jesus answered, because of the littleness of your faith. And he went on to say that if they had faith as a mustard seed, they could do anything. They could move mountains, figuratively speaking, of course. Now, the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds in the garden. So Jesus wasn't telling the disciples that they simply didn't have enough faith to do what they have been asked to do. It's not the amount of faith that makes the difference. It's the object of one's faith. It only takes a small amount of faith in the right person... To move mountains. He wasn't challenging them to conjure up more faith in what they could do. And and start chanting, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. In fact, Mark says Jesus went on to say, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, some unknown scribe apparently thought that wasn't good enough and added the words and fasting to Mark's account, and verse 21 to Matthew's account, but neither is found in the best manuscripts. Jesus simply said, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, I do have to admit, I really don't know what Jesus meant by this kind. I don't know if he's indicating that The boy's behavior was so extreme that it had frightened the disciples and made them question their authority to do what they should have been able to do. Or that there was something inherently complicated about his condition, that the possession went further than usual. I I don't know. But whatever the situation, Jesus assured them, that they could have cast out the demon if they had simply asked for his help. If they had prayed. And that, I believe, was the crux of the problem. The disciples had lost their faith in Jesus. Some things that he had been saying had confused him. He had been saying that he was going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and would suffer many things there, and be killed. Of course, he also said he'd be raised up on the third day, but apparently they didn't hear that part. All they could think about was that Jesus, the one who had commissioned and empowered them, was going to die. And if he died, their dreams about the kingdom and their place in it would surely die as well. They lost faith in him because they didn't understand the resurrection. And that becomes clear as we read on. Let's go on. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Jesus was simply restating what he had begun saying before the transfiguration. In Matthew sixteen twenty-one, we read, From that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, you remember how Peter responded, God, forbid it, Lord. This should never happen to you. Now, when Peter said God forbid it, he wasn't talking about the resurrection. He was talking about what would precede it. He was talking about the death. Apparently, he didn't hear or didn't understand what Jesus meant when he added, be raised up on the third day. I'm convinced that's why the disciples lost faith. All they heard was that Jesus was going to die and soon. So Jesus says it again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. How they respond this time? They were deeply grieved. Grieved because he would rise again? No. Grieved because he would die. They still did not understand this rise again on the third day thing. Mark says they didn't understand the statement and they were afraid to ask. Let that be a lesson for us. To always ask. Never be afraid to ask if you don't understand. Jesus may have been able to clear this up for them. But then again, they probably would have misinterpreted or spiritualized anything he would have said. Kind of like Martha. When Jesus said Lazarus would rise again. She said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection On the last day, Jesus responded by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall even live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said, well, yes. When they got to the tomb and Jesus said, remove the stone. What did she say? Did she get all excited and say, oh, I can't wait to see my brother come alive. I can't wait to see him again. No, no. She said, Lord, by this time, there'll be a stench. He'd been dead for four days. She still did not understand what Jesus was going to do. And the disciples wouldn't understand what he meant about rising again on the third day until they would see the empty tomb. It's hard to believe in the resurrection. But we must. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was adamant about it. He said in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. And in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Everything depends on the resurrection. And the disciples didn't yet understand it. So they were bound to fail in ministry. They couldn't look beyond the immediate. And no victory has been secured. How often do we lose sight of the resurrection? And because of it, we get frustrated and confused and fail in our day-by-day ministry. Well, they had lost their faith. They lost their power. Quite frankly, because they forgot who Jesus was. When they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a stater. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, Matthew, the former tax collector, is the only gospel writer to include this incident. In his gospel. And I think he did so for more than just his interest in taxes. As we look at the narrative, let's also look for a connection between this and what preceded it. Matthew says when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Now, The two drachma tax wasn't a civil tax. It was a religious tax, a temple tax. Every Jewish male over 20 years of age was expected to pay the equivalent of two days wages once a year for the operation and upkeep of the temple. Now, don't get too excited here. This is in addition to their tithes and offerings. Just make sure. Anyway, the way Peter was approached, it's apparent that this is another attempt to entrap Jesus. They hadn't been able to get him on anything else. Maybe they could get him for tax evasion. When they asked, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Peter said, yes. Apparently, that wasn't the best answer. When he went into the house, Jesus knew what had taken place. And he asked, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Peter answered, from strangers. And Jesus said, consequently, the sons are exempt. Now, what was the point? Of this exchange. Could it be a subtle or not so subtle reminder of just who Jesus was? The temple tax was also known as a redemption or atonement tax. and when asked if Jesus paid it, Peter said yes without thinking. Since Jesus was the Son of God, Would it really be necessary for him to pay the tax? No. Even kings of the earth don't collect taxes from their sons. Had Peter forgotten who Jesus was? Had he forgotten what he had said when Jesus asked, But who do you say that I am? How he had declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of God doesn't have to pay taxes to the Heavenly Father. That's the point Matthew, the tax collector, was making by including this little incident. It's a reaffirmation of just who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And the disciples would never succeed in ministry until they not only understood it, but understood the ramifications of it. Having reminded Peter of who he was, Jesus went on to tell Peter that he didn't want to give them, his enemies, ammunition to use against him. So even though he didn't have to pay the tax, being the son, he would pay it. He then told Peter how to miraculously get the amount needed for himself and for Peter. Peter was instructed to go to the sea and throw in a hook. The only time, by the way, this method of fishing is mentioned in the New Testament, Doug. The only time. And then he told him the first fish he'd catch and open his mouth would be a shekel. A stater. The equivalent of four drachma. Just what they needed to pay their taxes. Peter was to use that coin to pay their tax. Now, there are a lot of interesting side issues we could explore here concerning the nature of paying taxes and the nature of the miracle, but I don't want us to lose the focus here. The disciples failed in ministry because they had lost faith, They didn't understand the resurrection, and they forgot who Jesus was. We, too, will fail if we lose sight of who Jesus is and what he has done. We will be powerless to minister to the needs of those around us, if we don't believe in and bring them to our resurrected Lord. For without Him, we're nothing. Without Him, we'll surely fail. A hard teaching here, and one that gets confusing. Again, It distresses me that so many seem to think the point here is just think you can and then you can do it. Think positively and you can accomplish anything. With faith you can do it. That's not what he's saying. He says have confidence in me and what I can do through you. Remember that if I have commissioned you to do something, I will empower you to do it. You can do anything I've called you to do if you'll trust me. And if you remember who I am, and you'll not get frustrated by those temporary setbacks that are bound to come in ministry, if you'll just remember, I'm coming back. And you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. We'll hear that if we remember who Jesus is. And we'll never lose sight of the fact he's coming back. And he's a son of God. And he will do whatever he said he'd do if we'll just trust him. But without him, let's not kid ourselves, we can do nothing that has eternal consequence.